This morning in Joshua chapter 9, we come to this uh, curious tale of Israel's encounter with the Gibeonites, a people situated right in the heart of the promised land, just north of Jerusalem. And last week, you might recall, at the end of Joshua chapter 8, Israel had a service, a public service of covenant renewal. And now, fresh off of that dedication, they quickly, basically immediately, fall into deception. We're going to make three points this morning. One is deception. That's in verses 3 through 15. And then treaty in verses 16 through 21. And then curse, verses 22 through 27. So it's deception, treaty, and curse. Deception, treaty, and curse. So first the deception. The Gibeonites, they had heard, they heard what Joshua did to Jericho and Ai. And so the text tells us they resorted to a ruse. They, They concoct a plan to prevent their own destruction. They send a delegation to Joshua and to the Israelites with all signs of wear and tear, worn out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put on worn and patched sandals and clothes. They have dry, old, moldy food. And they come to Joshua and they say, we're from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. They, they appear to be aware of a provision in Israel's law, in the law of Moses, which allowed Israel to offer peace to cities that are outside the boundaries of the land. And that same law, which allowed peace with cities, peoples outside the land, it required Israel to destroy all unrepentant cities inside the land. And the question that the Israelites ask them reflects this distinction from their law. They say, but perhaps you live near us. Perhaps you're not from outside the land. Perhaps you're from inside the land. So how can we make a treaty with you? This is an excellent question. The Israelites here have some, it turns out not quite enough, but they have some wholesome suspicion about the story they're being told. And this is good. There is such a thing as holy suspicion. Jesus himself, we are told, knew what was in man. And thus, John tells us, he did not entrust himself to men. It's remarkable. Jesus knew what kinds of creatures we human beings are. Human beings lie. They distort the truth in the service of self-interest. He knew what was in man. And so without being paranoid, without being cynical, he was cautious. He had a holy kind of suspicion. And he tells us to be the same way. He tells his disciples that we are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So appearances can be deceiving, especially initial impressions and appearances. 
Things are often not what they appear to be. Men look on the outward appearance. The Lord penetrates and looks unto the heart. Human beings are not opaque. You can't see through them. And so there's a sort of trust but verify theology in this text. And that seems to be the, Israel, the Israelites' attitude here. They're asking the right questions. And the Gibeonites say, we are your servants. Which is really not much of an answer. So Joshua, still suspicious, says, who are you and where are you from? And so now he gets a larger, longer explanation to explain their worn-out appearance. We've come from a distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. We heard reports about what he did in Egypt and what he did on the other side of the Jordan to these two kings. So here, in this story, the deception actually continues. Right? They're not from a distant country. But as is often the case, when people deceive, they mix a good deal of the truth in with it. Because surely, like the inhabitants of the land in general, they have heard what the Lord did in Egypt. They heard what he did to the two kings. But even here, when they're telling a little bit of truth, the truth is selective and it's self-serving. We do this a lot, don't we? We select the truth and we bend it so that it serves our own needs. And here the truth is marred by an omission. Because we're already told at the beginning of the text, if you look back in verse 3, that it was because of the defeats of Jericho and Ai, which are inside the land, that they came to Joshua. But they can't say they heard about that because that would indicate that they're from inside the land. So they conveniently leave that part out. They say, yeah, we heard about what your God did far away in Egypt. So it turns out that second appearances and stories told to justify first appearances can also be deceiving. The Gibeonites here move from outright deception to spun half-truths. Notice the confession they make. We've heard of the fame and the works of Israel's God. It's very similar to the confession that Rahab makes. Two basically identical confessions. One is a confession of faith, and the other is a confession made in deceit. And Israel is called discerningly to tell them apart. And we're often called to this kind of discernment in life. And there are no easy or fixed rules as to figure out how to do this. You need the Spirit of the Lord. But we will return to this. Notice something else about the deceit here, though. And this is also often the case. It contains some subtle flattery. We are your servants. They say that twice. We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. You're in the driver's seat. We've heard about all that your God has done for you. You must be a very special and privileged and very religious people indeed. Flattery is often very subtle, but there's definitely flattery in this text. 
And flattery needs to be distinguished from encouragement. Flatterers can appear to be encouraging people, but they're not. They always have ulterior motives. They're always angling for leverage. That's why people are always flattering their boss, not encouraging him or her. They think it's encouragement, but it's flattery. Flatteries see them, flatterers, they look at themselves as building up capital so they can cash in on it later. Encouragers are seeking to put courage into the hearts of people. But flatterers are maneuvering for gain. They're political animals. And this is deadly stuff. The book of Proverbs says that a flatterer spreads a net for his neighbor. That a flattering mouth works ruin. Flattery is destructive. And so the deception continues. And verse 14 brings us to the nub of the issue. The Israelites sampled their provisions. Apparently more caution to test the story. But we're told, but they did not inquire of the Lord. And so a dose of holy suspicion is good, but it's not enough. Right? Not trusting initial or even second appearances is good, but it's not enough. One can do all this, Israel did it here, and still not be walking by faith. They're still walking by sight. It's good not to be naive, but it's not enough. In fact, there's another side to this which is interesting. People who like to examine things. Right? The corporate world is full of people like this. Successful people tend to be this way. They like to examine things. They don't trust appearances. They ask a lot of questions, many of them good questions. They seek for verification. They want data. They're not going to trust your word. People like that often fall into just this trap. They trust their own due diligence, but they never inquire of the Lord. They don't think they have to. But the law had a provision for just such cases as this. Right? Case, a case where the law doesn't cover this specific case. Right? There's no commandment in the law that says, by the way, if a strange people come to you and claim to be from a foreign land, they're lying. Right? There's no commandment in the Bible for a lot of things in life where we require wisdom. Right? There are just general principles and we're left to figure out how to apply them. But in the law, it was stated that in cases like this, divine guidance, in Numbers 21, was to be received from the high priest. Joshua and Israel should have consulted the high priest who would have inquired of the Lord on their behalf, but they failed to do this. Instead, they think, well, we've done our homework. The situation is clear and obvious. What could possibly go wrong? How hard could it be? What could possibly go wrong? So they make a treaty of peace to let them live and they ratify this treaty by an oath. 
So they had seen the Lord, the power of God, work against their big, obvious enemies. And this led to a kind of spiritual success which led to overconfidence, as it often does. We're often at our most vulnerable after the Lord has done something wonderful for us. Just last week, they had a covenant renewal service. Bam. They immediately fall into national deception. Who doesn't do this, right? We, we, We come in here... We make all sorts of vows and promises and we break them before we get to our cars in the parking lot. That's how fickle and corrupt we are. So, overconfident people are susceptible to flattery and to ruses and to trusting their own powers of due diligence. Let anyone, Paul says, anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So they saw God against their big obvious foes, but so they thought, we don't need to seek his wisdom against these little, tiny, more subtle enemies. And we often fall into the same trap. We lack wisdom for the simple reason that we think we already have it. And so we don't ask for it. We don't inquire we, we don't have this habit of resorting to the Lord in prayer in times, you know, habitually throughout the day when we need wisdom. It's one of our great sins of omission, actually. Thinking that we already know enough. And the results, as here, they can be disastrous. And so that brings us to the second point, which is the treaty. In, in verse 16, we're told that three days later, the Israelites heard that they were their near neighbors. They set out to confirm this, the text says, but they did not attack them because they had sworn an oath to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the assembly, the people, they don't like this. They grumble against the leaders. They're a lot like we are who are influenced by Western law. They want the oath annulled since it was made under deceitful conditions. They want an annulment on the treaty because the other party lied. And it's clear from the text that the congregation, the nation of Israel as a a whole, they want the Gibeonites killed. But the leaders answer them. You can see this in verse 19. They answer them, We have given them our oath by the Lord our God, the God of Israel. We cannot touch them now. And they're right, because we're going to see that God is going to uphold the leader's decision and the integrity of his covenant. I don't think this means that every reckless or unwise uh, vow or a vow made in deceitful circumstances needs to be upheld. The issue here in this text is that this is a covenant, the text says, ratified by an oath in the name of the Lord God of Israel. The text actually uses that language. And so it's his name, his integrity, his truthfulness, which is at stake here. And so this is why Scripture warns us in the sharpest of terms against hasty, careless oaths and vows. There is a type of person that's perpetually cutting deals with God. 
This is a very unhealthy state to be in. Vows should be very few, very solemn, and very sober. And in a case of a covenant where you're invoking the name of God and taking an oath, the time for inquiry is before the oath. Now Israel did inquire. They asked a couple questions. But they did not inquire of the Lord in whose name they were about to swear. It's a snare, Proverbs says, to say rashly, it is holy. And then afterwards to reflect on making the vow. And Israel's fallen into this snare. And a remarkable thing is this. Hundreds of years after this oath, hundreds of years, in 2 Samuel 21, in the midst of a national famine, David learns that the famine's cause is that Saul has slaughtered some Gibeonites. God upholds the integrity of his covenant across generations. 300 years later, when an Israelite king mistreats a Gibeonite, God sends a famine on the land. That's how important God takes covenant making. We are bound by covenants. We are oath-bound people. They structure our lives. We often don't think this way in America because we're so much, you know, free-floating individual type of thinkers. But we're oath- we live under the oath of the new covenant. We live under the oath of our baptisms. The renewal of that oath in the Lord's Supper. We're bound by the oath of marriage, the oaths of public office. Even the oaths made by our forefathers centuries ago to the Constitution. Right? We don't get a say on that. None of us get to say, oh, well, I didn't ratify these laws, so I'm not going to submit to them. We're bound, as Israel was, to the decisions that were made on our behalf hundreds of years ago. They shape our lives. Right? The stop sign at the end of the street, the speed limit. Presumably none of us were in the county legislature when they set those things. But we're bound by public laws that we have nothing to do with. We're bound by oaths that precede us and then by oaths that we make. Oaths sworn by church officers. Our lives are shaped and determined by oaths. And we must allow those oaths to be upheld even when they become inconvenient. And this is an inconvenient oath for Israel. And so in verse 20, the leaders say, we'll let them live so that God's wrath may not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. You know, modern Americans read this text and they say, but the Gibeonites lied, and the Gibeonites were deceptive. And so how can this covenant not be annulled? But the text's concern is that the wrath of God is going to fall not on the Gibeonites, but on Israel. The existence of the oath is Israel's fault. And the danger of wrath for abusing the name of God rests on Israel. And so there's this solution in verse 21. Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. And so the leaders 
keep their promise to the Gibeonites. And that brings us to the third point, which is the curse. In verse 22, Joshua asks why the Gibeonites engage in this deception. So Joshua's like, okay, we know you're lying. Now tell me why you lied. And they, they tell the story about they heard, basically they say, we don't want any part of this campaign of holy war. We heard about the holy war inside of Canaan, and we want to avoid it. And so Joshua pronounces a curse on them. He says, you're going to be woodcutters and water carriers for the house of God. Verse 27 says, they'll provide for the needs of the altar, wood for the sacrifices, water for the various cleansing and washings. And that, the text says at the end, is what they are to this day. So I want to make a couple points about this arrangement. Moving here to apply this text to us more directly. First, first, thing, first thing to note is human beings, all of us, regularly find ourselves, whether by oath or by some form of folly, or just by general providence, we humans often find ourselves in situations which have made a total mess out of our lives. And Israel is surely in a situation like that. Israel has a huge problem, and it's their fault. So what do you do when this happens? Life is a mess. People and things have gone way off script. Maybe a lot of it's your fault. Maybe most of it's somebody else's fault. Turns out that this is, well, you know, 95% of life. Well, you do what Joshua does here. You make the best of the broken situation. There are no situations that are basically unbroken. Broken situations are the situations we have. You can't fix the situation. Joshua can't fix this. You can't undo the situation. Joshua can't undo this oath. What is bent, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us, what is bent cannot, in many cases, be straightened out. A good deal of our exasperation and frustration and bitterness in life is because we are spending time trying to straighten out bent things that are not going to be straightened out. Things which are, like the situation in this text, things which have the appearance of a curse. So what is our calling? It's simply to live faithfully in a twisted situation. To make the best of it. To use whatever opportunities the situation presents for witness, for grace, for growth and sanctity. But it does require, to some extent, recognizing that the situation is what it is. Twisted, fallen situations comprise the larger part of the situations in any life. There are bells which cannot be unrung. This is one of them. The Gibeonites are going to be inside of Israel for centuries. And it's folly, by the way, folly to pine for the situation to be other than what it is. This is another great sin of ours, right? A kind of romantic nostalgia. If only I hadn't done this, 
with that person or made this deal or made that decision or if only he or she or they were different. And so we mainline nostalgia for some other situation while we're in this one. And so Joshua has a sense of this and he implements a workable plan without trying to remove the bitterness or the curse of the situation. And the second thing to say here is this. God has a way of taking these situations, even when we're the ones who've twisted them, and turning the curse of the situation into a blessing. The deceitful, lying, pagan Gibeonites... Canaanite idolaters whose gods would naturally subvert the worship of Israel. They are, by this curse of Joshua, drawn right into the service of the worship of Yahweh at the house of God. They're drawn into the sphere of redemption. They're going to actually be chopping the wood for the sacrifices at the temple and providing the water to the priests as they wash. It's magnificent. This is what God is doing in the twisted situations in our lives. Drawing us, deceitful, lying Gibeonites all, worried about our own skin more than the truth, drawing us into His worship and into His altar when we should have been annihilated. And the Gibeonites now have a place in Israel. And we have every indication to believe they became fully assimilated hundreds of years after this text, after the Babylonian exile. So some 500, 600, 700 years after this text, when the Jews returned to the land after exile and the wall around Jerusalem was being rebuilt under Nehemiah, we hear, when he counts the people, a list of 95 Gibeonites who were wall builders in the New Jerusalem. So this is a curse, if you will, that Joshua pronounces, tempered by the grace of God, the God who takes the long view. Right? The God who, in his glorious freedom, is never outmaneuvered by our folly. So three quick things as I close. First, holy suspicion is good, but we must ask and seek wisdom. Especially when we think we have things in control, we need to pray. For God has become our Father in Jesus Christ, and you can bring your petitions to Him. Secondly, remember, our O's are to be few and entered into with caution and deliberation because our lives are shaped for good or for ill, by those oaths. And here we're to remember that God swore an oath and sealed it in the blood of His Son so that the folly of our sinfulness might be healed. And thirdly, we must live faithfully without nostalgia in the twisted situations of life. For our God is ever sovereign and he's ever gracious, and he makes his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He has taken us deceitful Gibeonites, 
and he has brought us into his house. Amen.